Good evening, everyone. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope. And I just want to say I'm so excited that the kids are back. So excited, and we're, uh, yeah, yeah, that's worth an applause, a whoop, and a holler. It really is. Um, and so, yeah, kids, so glad you're here. And I hope you're encouraged to be here and hear all the singing and hear preaching and get to see everyone. Well, we're excited to see you. And I bet, I bet that uh, many of you are never, never have been so glad for bulletins than tonight, <laughs> right? Okay. So, I won't mind if you're most of the time fanning yourself and then occasionally you look down at the Scripture that's printed in your bulletin. That'll be fine with me, um, but I will, I will want you to look at the passage from time to time. At times, uh, my wife Joanne has made sourdough bread for us in our home. I don't know if any of you have had sourdough bread. It's delicious. It's almost as good as the butter that I get to put on it. Um, but there's an interesting thing about making sourdough bread… And the easiest way to begin making sourdough bread is not to pull out a recipe and start from what we call scratch or nothing and just add things together. The easiest way is to go to someone who has been making sourdough bread because they have what's called the starter. They have some of the base material called starter. And if you can get a little bit of that base material, a little bit of that starter, and you bring it home and you put it in your own jar, and then you do what's called feeding it, and you put flour and water in it, and that starter will expand and grow. And pretty soon, you've got enough starter to take a lot of it and take it out and bake it and turn it into loaves of bread. Meanwhile, you keep some of that starter, and you keep it going. You keep feeding it. You keep having it grow. You keep baking bread. And that's how sourdough bread gets spread around from friend to friend to friend, from house to house. And you're probably wondering, why is he talking about sourdough bread and starter? Because sourdough bread and the way sourdough bread gets spread from person to person is much like the way that the gospel gets spread to faraway places. The best way to do it is to share some from some people from a church who go out as missionaries and begin preaching the gospel in another place, and they begin to make disciples. And those disciples gather together in churches then, and they start sharing the gospel with their friends and neighbors, and the church grows. But how do other churches then in faraway places continue to be planted or started? Well, that church can then commission based on a, a movement and a work of God, commission missionaries to go out to a faraway place and to begin preaching the gospel in that place, to begin seeing people become disciples of Christ. Churches send disciples who are missionaries, maybe across the city, just like we did when Covenant Hope Church was started almost four years ago. Redeemer Church of Dubai sent us out to this part of the city. Well, it wasn't to this part of the city, actually, to another part of the city, but they sent us out to start another gospel-preaching church. Maybe 
a church sends missionaries out to other countries. And then missionaries then in those places preach the gospel to make disciples. Those new disciples gather together in new churches, and those churches make disciples. And maybe one day they too begin to send missionaries out to plant churches. You see how it keeps going? All driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sovereignty of God. Now, in chapter 13 and 14 in Acts, Luke is recounting to us the story of how the church began to spread to faraway places and especially to the Gentiles. Last week in chapter 13, we saw the beginning of Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. And the big idea from that passage in chapter 13 was this, we send missionaries to proclaim the gospel so that God's chosen people believe while others reject it. What I want us to see in chapter 14, the conclusion of their first missionary journey, is that we send missionaries to persevere in proclamation, to plant churches and report on God's work. We send missionaries out to persevere in proclamation, to plant churches and report on God's work. Now, if you would, open up your bulletins to page 13 for just a moment. I want to look at this little map with you and just bring you up to speed with where we are. If you look on this map, over on the right side of the map there in Syria is the city of Antioch, and that's where Paul and Barnabas were ministering as leaders in the church at Antioch. And if you follow the dark arrows that lead away from Antioch, it swoops down to the island of Cyprus. This is the journey and the path that Paul and Barnabas took. Of course, in Antioch, the Holy Spirit had set Paul and Barnabas apart for the work to go preach the gospel in faraway places. The church had confirmed that. They had commissioned them, prayed for them, laid hands on them, and sent them off. So they went down to the coast, and that first bold arrow, they went over to the island of Cyprus. And they preached, making their way all the way through the island of Cyprus to the capital city there of Paphos. And there in Paphos, they preached the gospel, and amazingly, they saw the proconsul, the Roman proconsul, become a Christian. He believed. Well, then they got on a boat and they sailed north, that's arrow number three, up to the, what is today the Turkish coast, to there to Italia. And then they journeyed overland, arrow number four, up to Antioch, same city named after the city or like the city that they originally came from. But there in Antioch, they preached the gospel in a synagogue. And in Antioch, Luke records for us the first full sermon that we have recorded of the Apostle Paul. He preached to the Jews there and the converts, the Greek converts to Judaism, and many became Christians, but eventually they opposed him. Many of them opposed him. And so he said to them that we will now, because you have rejected the gospel and not counted yourself worthy of salvation and eternal life, we will preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles rejoiced. And so there in Antioch in Pisidia, that's the area that it's called, was born a church, a church made up of both Jewish converts and Gentile converts. So now in chapter 14, we're going to follow the rest of their journey, arrow 5, 
over to Antioch, excuse me, Iconium, down to Lystra, and over to Derby, then all the way back again, eventually on a boat back to Antioch. So they'll complete the journey. That's where we're going this evening in our sermon. Well, in Antioch, that's where last week's passage end, and you would have thought that they might have turned around and gone back to their hometown at that moment because of the opposition that they faced. But Paul and Barnabas were not discouraged. They pressed on. They persevered. And so, this evening, we're going to follow their missionary journey as they preach in three more cities, two of which are highlighted by Luke in chapter 14, verses 1 through 21, which describe Paul and Barnabas persevering in proclamation. Persevering in proclamation. That's the first of two points this evening, persevering in proclamation. Now, the first city where they persevered in the ministry was Iconium. Iconium is the city that today is called Konya. It exists today. It's one of the top five largest cities in the country of Turkey. The first mission trip that I went on as a university student was to Turkey in 1996, and we visited Konya of all places. I wish I had known my Bible as well as I do now, and I think I would have appreciated it even more than I did then. But Paul and Barnabas knew that they had been called to preach the gospel to Gentiles, but they continued in a pattern of ministry in Iconium that began in the Jewish synagogue. They went to the synagogue first. Now, it was natural for them to proclaim the gospel to the Jews first, anywhere they went. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes, in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the gospel should logically be understood by Jews first because they have the whole Old Testament. They read from the whole Old Testament every Sabbath, when they gather in the synagogue, they would read from different passages there in the Old Testament. They would read about the promises of God to their people from thousands of years ago. They have the Psalms in the Old Testament that point to Christ. They have the prophets who foretold of a Messiah who would come and suffer but conquer. And so it's natural and logical for Paul and Barnabas to go to the Jews first with the gospel. But the message of the gospel is a spiritual message, and understanding it requires a work of the Spirit in men and women's hearts before they can believe it and accept it. When Paul and Barnabas preached in Iconium, the Spirit opened the eyes of many Jews and Greeks there in the synagogue. The Greeks were likely converts to Judaism. But those in whom the Spirit didn't work, they turned against the apostles. There was opposition, just like they had faced in Antioch, Pisidia. Look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2 there. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Even still, Paul and Barnabas persisted. They persevered. It says they remained a long time, it says. 
and spoke boldly. And the Lord also granted that Paul and Barnabas could do signs and wonders. They could do miracles there, evidently in Iconium, to confirm their message. These were miracles just like what had been done by the apostles during the growth of the church in Jerusalem. If you'll remember back to those first several chapters in Acts. Now the miracles, we know, I've said it over again and it's worth saying again, the miracles weren't meant simply to impress the crowd. They weren't meant simply to relieve the suffering of the people, although they did that so often. No, the miracles were to confirm the message of the gospel. The message was always preeminent. It was the most important thing, and that continues to this very day. But still, the unbelieving Jews increased their fight against the apostles, and they even made a plan with the Gentile rulers to stone Paul and Barnabas, to literally to kill them. And when the apostles learned about that plan, they fled to neighboring cities and towns where they could continue preaching. Now, what stands out most, perhaps most of all, from the apostles' time in Iconium is the continued boldness of Paul and Barnabas. Did you see that? When the opposition came, they decided to stay even longer so that they could speak boldly for the Lord, it says. Every Christian should aspire to be someone who speaks boldly for, the, for Christ. Speaking boldly for Christ is not just to be left up to apostles with names like Paul and Peter. It's for us too. If you've trusted in Christ, you and I are filled with the same Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas were filled with. Being shy or timid in your faith can represent a lack of maturity in Christ. And so we should pray and want to grow out of timidity and shyness and grow into boldness and courage for Jesus. That should be the goal of every Christian. But it's not always a lack of maturity that holds us back. Of course, some of the boldest evangelists among us are oftentimes new Christians. Perhaps you've known some who first come to Christ, and they're sharing the gospel with everyone and anyone that they meet. It's wonderful to see. But think about those bold new Christians that are so filled with new confidence in Christ What is going on in them is that they have a lack of concern for what others think about them because they're so overwhelmed with what Christ has done for them. Think about what keeps you from speaking boldly about your faith in Christ. What is it? Ask yourself that question. It's easy to diagnose and say, yes, I'm not bold for Christ, but why? What is it? Could it be fear? Fear of how others will view you if you talk about Jesus, if you talk about the fact that all people are sinful and stand condemned before God and need forgiveness but can't get it on their own? The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter famously said in a poem, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. What will it matter to you and I if people look down on us or stand opposed to us if we recognize that we are all dying 
and that salvation in Christ is the most important thing for every single person that we meet. There's nothing more important. And we may not get another chance to share the gospel with them. Oh, brothers and sisters, pray for boldness. Pray against shyness and timidity and fear. Pray for the Spirit to fill you to speak about Christ. Another reason that could be holding you back from speaking boldly about Christ is spiritual dullness. Maybe you've wandered farther and farther from a vibrant daily walk with Jesus and your sense of wonder at knowing Him and experiencing His grace, it, it seems like a distant memory. Oh, church, shake off your dullness. Shake off your lethargy. Take steps to move towards Jesus. Run hard after Christ. Daily drink in the truths of His Word, which recounts over and over again His tender mercies for us, His lavish love for us, His boundless grace. Oh, brothers and sisters, you and I need His boundless grace for us as much today as we did when we first gave our lives to Christ. We need it just as much. Be amazed again at the amazing grace of Jesus. We can't proclaim Him boldly for long without walking closely with Him day by day. Press into Jesus. When Paul and Barnabas moved on to preach the gospel then in the city of Lystra, beginning in verse 8, they encountered different problems that they had in Antioch or Iconium, but they continued to persevere in proclaiming the good news. There in Lystra, the miraculous healing of a crippled man is described there in verses 1, 8 through 10, and it's what Luke begins recounting for us first. It's a healing much like that healing of the lame man by Peter back in Acts chapter 3, if you remember that. There's wording that's very similar, and I think Luke wants us to relate it to Peter's healing of the man there at the beginning of the book of Acts. But the reaction of the people in Jerusalem to Peter's healing of the lame man is much different than the reaction of the people here. These people are pagan people. These people were probably largely illiterate people. And their response is to immediately identify Paul as the god Zeus and Barnabas as the god Hermes, his son. And they then begin to set out to sacrifice bulls before them in order to literally worship Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's likely that the townspeople were familiar with a local legend that told of how the gods Zeus and his son Hermes had visited that region around Lystra in ages past. And when they disguised themselves and sought shelter in home after home, they were turned away everywhere, except for one elderly couple which welcomed them in and took care of them and showed them hospitality. Later, the gods rewarded that elderly couple but destroyed the homes of all the other people who had rejected Zeus and Hermes. Knowing and believing that legend, these people of Lystra, of course, mistook Paul and Barnabas for the gods who were visiting them, and they decided we better not make the same mistake that our ancestors make. 
Let's welcome one. Let's even worship them. And whereas in Iconium they encountered opposition, here they first encountered being misunderstood. And you know that's something we too can face as believers when we begin to explain the gospel to people. Being misunderstood. As proclaimers of the good news, we have to work hard to be clear about the gospel. We have to oftentimes explain it over and over and over again, perhaps with different words, maybe from different passages in the Bible. Remember, it's spiritual understanding that enables people to repent and trust in Christ. And we have to wait on the Lord to work in people's hearts. But when the apostles realized what was about to happen, that they were going to have bulls sacrificed to them as if they were gods, they were horrified. They tore their clothes. They rushed out into the crowd. And they tried to correct the misunderstanding before the people worshiped them. They saw it as blasphemous. No, don't worship us, they're saying. And what follows in verses 15, 16, and 17 is the beginning of an urgent gospel sermon that likely Paul declared to the pagan people of Lystra. And his starting point for presenting the gospel is very different than the sermons that he preached in Jewish synagogues. I wonder if you noticed that. In the synagogues, Paul would always begin pointing to the history of Israel and the promises of God in the pages of the Old Testament. He would quote many times from the Old Testament passages. But to illiterate pagans, Paul begins by pointing to things in the natural world that they can see. He points to creation. Look with me at verses 15 through 17 again. He says, "'Men, why are you doing these things?' We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and yet He did not leave Himself without a witness, for He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness." Paul is telling them that the created world and the way their needs are being met by what's in the world is evidence for the one true living God who made everything. In verse 15, Paul is likely quoting Exodus 20 verse 11 and Psalm 146 verse 6. They're very similar to each other. But they refer to this knowledge as something that people can recognize even without Scripture even without reading the Bible. In theology, we think of the ways that God has revealed Himself in two different categories. First of all, God has revealed Himself in nature, the sheer beauty, power, and creativity that nature represents points to the Creator who Himself is beautiful and powerful and creative and even good and loving because of what He's created. That's called general revelation, general revelation from God. John Calvin wrote in his famous work, The Institutes, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. The Apostle Paul, of course, testifies to this in Romans chapter 1. So even the person who says, look, there is no God, I don't believe there's a God, deep down 
knows that to be untrue. R.C. Sproul is famous for saying, there are no true atheists. But God's revelation in His Word and in Scripture is different, and we call that special revelation. Creation represents general revelation. Scripture represents special revelation. And special revelation is Paul's starting point in the synagogue. General revelation can tell us that there's a Creator God and some of what He's like. So think, for example, of what Psalm 19 refers to. Psalm 19 begins by praising God for general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's how Psalm 19 starts out. But it shifts to praising God for special revelation in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. But listen to this, brothers and sisters. No one can be saved No one can have their sins forgiven simply by recognizing what's in nature. Special revelation is necessary for salvation. The good news about Jesus Christ is contained only in the Scriptures. How He took on flesh and entered our world. How He lived in complete obedience to the Father. How He went to the cross to die in our place for our sin. And how He was raised to new life again by the Father in the power of the Spirit. And how forgiveness and the promise of eternal life can be obtained by anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Him. That, that is the gospel. And it is found only in special revelation. People must hear it to be saved. The urgent address that's recounted here as Paul pleaded with the Lyconians is not the gospel. He must have gone on to share the gospel. We know that he eventually got there because the good news of Jesus Christ found in special revelation must have been shared with them because they leave Lystra knowing that there are disciples of Christ. People have come to faith. So what we have here is a partial recounting of what Paul proclaimed to them. Now, we can learn from Paul that presenting the gospel can have various starting points depending on who we're speaking to. If the person you're sharing the gospel with has no Christian heritage, no knowledge of what's in the Old Testament, then beginning with references to the promises made to Abraham in Genesis or the covenant that God made with King David in 1 Samuel chapter 7 might not be the best place to start. Where we begin in sharing the gospel can change based on who we're speaking to, but where we end must never change. We conclude by proclaiming Christ and the forgiveness that's found in Him. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself that you simply believe in God. Someone's invited you here to the church service. Maybe this isn't your first evening here with us, but You think, I believe in God, I believe that He created everything, and you think that simply by believing in Him, believing that He exists, that puts you in good standing with Him. My friend, oh my friend, that is not enough. It is not enough to simply believe that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. 
This Creator God sent His only Son into the world, and His name is Jesus. He died and rose again so that your sins could be forgiven and that you might come to know Him, the Creator God, intimately. Your belief in God is not enough. Jesus came so that you might have eternal life. Will you repent and trust in Him? Will you believe in this Jesus? You can do it now. The dramatic scene of these Lyconians trying to worship Paul and Barnabas eventually turned completely around and ended up with them trying to kill Paul and Barnabas. Some of the troublemaking Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they turned the people of Lystra against the apostles, and stoning, they began to stone them. And the stoning that they narrowly escaped in Iconium, they couldn't escape in Lystra. And so Paul was stoned and evidently passed out, and the people drug his body outside the city thinking he was dead. But he wasn't dead. In verse 20, we read that the disciples gathered around him and he regained consciousness. He even re entered the city where he's just been stoned. <laughs> this is amazing. This is amazing that this man would get up and go back into the same city where he just was pummeled with rocks. Paul recounts his sufferings in many of his writings, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 25, he says, once I was stoned. It's likely that Paul was referring to this very incident when he wrote about that. And yet, and yet, Paul and Barnabas pressed on. They persevered by traveling on to the city of Derbe where they shared the gospel as well. Can you imagine what those, that next day's journey would have been like for Paul? having just been stoned and thought to have been dead because of how his body was battered and beaten the day before? You know, to get from Lystra to Derby was another 100 kilometers. That's like walking from here to downtown Abu Dhabi. And all of that after having been stoned. What amazing courage. What amazing boldness. What amazing commitment and perseverance. We're not told what happened in Derby, But in verse 21, we see Paul and Barnabas finally reverse course in their journey and travel back through the cities where they made many disciples, where they finally arrived then in the city of Antioch in Syria. Verses 21 through 28 describe Paul and Barnabas planting and reporting to churches. That's the second point this evening. Planting and reporting to churches. As Paul and Barnabas made their way back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Pisidia, we don't have much indication that they did much public evangelism. I believe they did down in the city of Perga before they got on a ship. But instead, they seem to have focused on building up the disciples that they had made beforehand. It says in verse 22, that they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. Surely these apostles spent time further explaining different parts of the gospel message. 
They probably tutored them more deeply in an understanding of the Old Testament history and in many ways that it, how it pointed to the coming of Christ. They would have instructed them in how they must live differently as Christians than the Jews or the pagans around whom they lived. The kind of instruction they would have given them is, is really all that you and I read in the epistles of the New Testament. That's the kind of thing that Paul and Barnabas would have been teaching them. Gospel truth and how to live a gospel life. Now, since they had experienced so much conflict in coming to faith, these new disciples of Christ were likely tempted to understand trials and tribulations as possible indications that they were doing something wrong, that maybe God was displeased with them and was causing them trouble and conflict. But the apostles would have driven home the fact that Jesus taught that everyone who followed Him would face hardships. Everyone who took up their cross and followed after Jesus would be rejected by some people around them. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the message that Paul and Barnabas were sharing with these disciples in these cities. Are you experiencing trials and hardships? perhaps persecution for your faith, you're not alone. The Lord is near those who are suffering for Him. And you're not alone amongst your peers and fellow Christians either. We too must experience many tribulations as we enter the kingdom of God. But take heart. Remember the promises of Jesus. He will bring you safely home to be with Him. Nothing that you lose here in this life, nothing that you face here compares with what we've been given in Christ and in eternity. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth comparing. That's how we make it through suffering. We know that it's not worth comparing to what we've received in Christ. Another thing that we see here is that new Christians need to be discipled. If someone comes to Christ, our work really lies before us. To simply leave a new Christian to fend for themselves is cruel. Like a baby that's vulnerable and has needs, it can't be meet on its own. We want to begin to teach new believers the basics of the faith and what it means to live with Christ as our King. And that happens best in the context of the local church. We see that right here in this passage. If you're a new believer, the best place for you to grow, in fact, the context for walking with Christ throughout your life is as a member of a local church. If you know someone who's recently given their life to Christ, teach and guide them into membership in a local church. That's the place for them. In addition, in this passage, we see that missionaries should always be working towards seeing churches planted or launched. That's the model that Paul and Barnabas demonstrate here. Look with me at verse 40, uh, excuse me, 23. 
It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In the same way that they had been sent out and commissioned by the church in Antioch, Syria, Paul and Barnabas commissioned the churches and helped put in place leaders, elders, in fact, in every church in those cities. Notice that these gatherings of Christians were considered churches before they gained elders. A church, in its most simplest definition, is a group of Christians who have covenanted together to grow together in Christ under true gospel preaching and to obey Jesus in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's the simplest definition of a church. Christians who have covenanted together to grow together in Christ under true gospel preaching and to obey Jesus in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, for the church to appoint elders, it only strengthens the church, and that must have been true for these churches in these cities. Elders there would have then taken on the responsibility for overseeing those critical elements of preaching and the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They would have seen to it that those were conducted in the way that the apostles had instructed. They would have made sure that the preaching was in line with the gospel and in line with Scripture. And so the churches would have grown in health and maturity. Now, this commitment to evangelism, which leads to churches being planted, is something that you need discernment about when you think about what ministries to support. You may have opportunities, people from distant places or even here in the city or the country of UAE, to support ministries that are working here with people. If you're supporting those Christian ministries, I encourage you, and it's entirely fine to do that, make sure that the ministries that you support believe and preach the same gospel that we do here in this church. Make sure that they're partnered with and seeking for the planting of churches, ultimately. It's something that we as a church are wholeheartedly committed to as well in the ministry that we support, Ministries which only do evangelism but have no partnership with the local church can ultimately be harmful. Healthy, biblical missionary work will always be working towards seeing churches planted. That was Paul and Barnabas' model. It should be our model too. In verses 24 and 28, Paul and Barnabas make their way by land and then boat back to Antioch and Syria where they began the very beginning of chapter 13. They had traveled over 1,600 kilometers. They had likely been gone for over two years. Can you imagine what it would have been like when they came back into town? Do you see what they did there in 27 and 28? And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas had some responsibility to the church which had sent them. They were accountable to them. They had likely helped to fund the trip. It had been the whole church which had sensed the Holy Spirit setting them apart for this work. 
and commissioning them to go. It's healthy for missionaries to be accountable to churches which send them out. Missionaries who have no accountability mechanisms can easily get off track theologically or financially even or in any number of ways. We should not support missionaries who are independent and untethered, untied to, unaccountable to sending churches or a healthy church in the place where they're ministering. It's just dangerous. The fact that Paul and Barnabas gathered the whole church also means that missions is the business of every member in the church. To be a Christian is to be concerned about the advance of the gospel to people far away from you in lands and among peoples that you will likely never see or never meet. You may not go to faraway places to plant churches like Paul and Barnabas, but the church that you're a part of must be contributing to the cause of missions to be a healthy church. Even young churches like ours who can't give away huge amounts of money can pray for the advance of the gospel. We can try to welcome in pastoral interns as we're doing and train them and send them back to their home country to plant churches there and strengthen the churches there. We can even send out some of our own to help with other partnering churches to share the gospel and plant churches in places like Turkey and Iraq, just as we have done in the past four years. Praise God for how He's worked through us to influence and affect gospel preaching in faraway places, places that you and I have likely never been to. Lastly, we can't miss that all of what's happened in Paul and Barnabas' journey from first to last is a work of the grace of God. Did you see that there? They didn't report about what they did. They didn't report about the spectacular miracles particularly. The focus was on the work of God and all that He had done. God is the one who sends God is the one who supplies strength and wisdom along the way. God is the one who changes hearts and makes disciples. And God is the one who should get 100% of the glory and the credit as the church grows and expands throughout the world. We should praise God from first to last. God sent us Christ and the gospel. We repented and trusted in Him. We were welcomed and gathered into churches. We proclaim the gospel as one local church in order to make disciples. Churches then, like ours, send out missionaries to go to faraway places to proclaim the gospel to see the kingdom of God grow. And the process continues on and on and on until Jesus comes back. Praise God that He is the one in charge of gospel ministry. Praise God that He is the one that saves people, founds churches, and causes the spread of the gospel to this very day. Let's pray to Him. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for Jesus. We thank You that You have given us the gospel and entrusted it to us to proclaim it, to make disciples. And You've even given us the model here in these very pages that we've studied this evening 
to send out those that you set apart to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to continue to do that as a church. Raise up people from within our midst. Enable us to give more and more funds to make that happen. Lord, help each one of us as followers of yours to care about gospel ministry abroad. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.